All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Yes, indeed, I have missed you all. In fact, I've been walking Central Park, singing after dark. People think I'm crazy. I've been stumbling on my feet, shuffling through the street, asking people, what's the matter with you, boy? Well, what's the matter with me, boy, is I need to go fishing so I can be rodcasting. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing, Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and we have got a great episode for you this week because this week I have got Chris Adams and Brooke Oliva from Mudhole on the Rodcast. Now, for those of you who don't know, and you ought to be ashamed for not knowing, Mudhole is the world's largest supplier of rod building and tackle crafting supplies. So for all you DIYers and those of you who want to learn about building your own custom rods, we have got a great conversation coming up with the pros from Mudhole. I am also going to share my thoughts with you about a newer bourbon to hit the market that is made with anglers in mind, and that's Walker's K bourbon. I'll also count down my top 10 fishing movies. That's right. We're going to get a little insight into what films to watch during the indoor fishing season when the weather just keeps us off the water. And yes, I am as much a fanatic film buff as I am a fanatic angler and bourbon drinker. So trust me, you want this top 10 list and I want to give it to you. Hey, speaking of movies, what do you get when four guys go fishing and all but one of them catches fish? Three men and a baby. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Try the veal. Don't forget, this is the smartest fishing podcast online online <laughs> fishing joke hey be sure to subscribe to the rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the rodcast and be sure to share the rodcast with all of your angling and drinking buddies let's get cast in All right, we have got a really interesting conversation lined up for today because today we have taken the inshore offshore digital studio mobile and we're in the amazing mud hole facility in Oviedo, Florida, just outside of Orlando. And we have Brooke Oliva, uh, the president of Mud Hole Rod Building and Tackle Crafting, and Chris Adams, a content specialist and product specialist at Mud Hole. Now, for those of you who don't know, Mud Hole is the largest rod building supplier in the world, and Mud Hole has transformed rod building from a small niche market comprised of mainly of that stereotypical fanatic working alone in a garage to a global segment of the recreational fishing industry populated by hobbyists, DIYers, and anglers of all sort. Now, Mudhole is much more than a catalog sales company that distributes rod building components. They're also the leader in rod building education, with courses available here at the Mudhole facility and a robust online education program offering courses and webinars for all levels of rod builders. So I'm really thrilled to get the chance to talk with Brooke and Chris today about Mudhole and about rod building. Thanks, guys, for joining us here on what we like to call the Rodcast. 
Right on. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, really appreciate it. So, Brooke, I suppose, first of all, congratulations are in order, because if I'm not mistaken, you've been promoted from vice president of operations to president of Mudhole since we last talked. So yeah, congrats. that's correct. I appreciate that. Thank you. Excellent. So let's start with a little background, Brooke. Would you tell us about the Mudhole origin story and how the company got to where it is? Yeah, so it's one of those cool American entrepreneurial spirit stories, right? So Tom McNamara, who's the owner of Muddle Custom Tackle, actually bought it um, midway through 1999. Muddle got its start up in New Jersey. It was an actual tackle store with a rod building segment. They'd produced a catalog. Um, and it all kind of centered around Tom was looking for a particular reel that he wanted. He wanted a van stall because he wanted a reel with some line capacity and couldn't find one in the local market. So he's hunting around on the internet. This is kind of before the onset of e-commerce and you know obviously it's not what it is today. You couldn't just hop on Amazon and find uh, whatever you wanted within three and a half seconds. But he stumbles across this shop up in New Jersey who happens to have the reel, calls up to him and says you know hey I'd like to buy this and then starts talking to him about the other segments of the business and then a few months later he's purchased the company and moved it down into his garage and then from its garage you know starting with just him and his wife helping pick pack orders out of there we are now in our fourth facility so we went from roughly call it 400 square feet in a garage to the 76,000 square foot facility that we occupy today. So speaking of the facility, and I know on an audio podcast, it's hard to get a sense of that space, but since we're also doing video today, could you tell us a little bit about this amazing facility? Yeah, so uh, we went big with this one. Every, every time we've moved, we've always kind of stepped into it to where it's like, all right, this is our home. We've, you know, we've got this locked down, but we've been lucky enough to continue to grow uh, as time went on. So... We built this from the ground up. This was purchased as property that we redeveloped um, and actually took occupation. We got our CO December 24th of 2019 and we're fully operational. You know, we call it fully operational, but this we were we were shipping orders by the 2nd of January again. So we moved a fully functioning operational business in the course of about five days into here and it was just everybody running around with their hair on fire it was wild you know we we took our time when we built this place out um you know obviously the e-commerce element is the primary driver behind you know our business it's the pillar of you know what we do so a lot of attention was paid into making a efficient functional and scalable you know, fulfillment center out back. And then we also wanted to really put a lot of attention into the other elements of what makes what we do cool. Um, and that a lot of that went into both the showroom, you know, rod building as a whole has always been that little niche in the fishing industry. A lot of people didn't know it even existed before we started to make, you know, a pretty serious push into it. So we paid a lot of attention to the showroom to make it a fun cool space for rod builders to come in and see we have a state-of-the-art education center that's housed you know you mentioned our our classes um you know we built that specifically 
to be able to house in-person classes and give a well-lit workshop environment to really enhance the experience for potential rod builders. And then we also double that as a community resource. We just hosted the Central Florida Offshore Anglers Rigging Seminar. They have their monthly uh, seminars there. CCA hosts their annual meetings and whatnot. And we offer that all at no charge for you know the community and other fishing clubs and you know and then obviously the marketing element I can pass over to Chris and he can tell you about some of the cool stuff we've done up here yeah it's it's a very neat space because I think most companies you know they they struggle with trying to do a lot of different things either under one roof and they'll have to outsource stuff and you know not only does you know outsourcing you know your marketing and your media and stuff sometimes offers its own little challenges of you know you want to make sure that those people speak the language and and they're also trying to capture what you're trying to capture and then you know then there's also time it says okay so this is what we produced what do you think and then you kind of have to go back and forth and you know it's it's an incredible facility because it allows us to walk from you know the room that we're all in um, and it's an open space so we can just talk freely you know we don't we're not having to send emails across multiple floors and, we're and not do IBM. we wanted to keep it community <laughs> yeah right you know that the goal the culture you know we wanted to be able to add some professionalism and whatnot but you know we're still just fisher dudes and women, yeah you know, that might you know we might have a nerf gun on the desk yeah. you know but but we can stand up and say like Hey, I don't, I don't think that that color, what do you think about that? Or I think we should just, let's just reshoot that and change the angle a little bit. And the great thing is we can, you know, walk 50 feet down a hallway and we have a fully functional film studio. I mean, that, I think that film studio is what, 40 by 40, 50 by 50? Uh, it's, it's big. I don't yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. We can literally do anything in there. We have, uh, you know, walls and sets on wheels. Uh, that's where we shoot the Mudhole Live show, which is crazy because now we're in episode 86, I think, coming up. We've been doing it now for five years, and, uh, you know, that was a, just a brainchild of the room. You know, we were like, hey, we, we probably should do a live show. It would be cool. And we honestly started shooting it in the last facility with a fake brick wall as the background and in a room that is actually smaller than the conference room that we're in right now. It, it felt like a closet. The Facebook Live evolution is a good indicator of just the evolution of the business as a whole. Yeah. We went from literally a, a room that we built just kind of freestanding walls in a little corner of the old warehouse and, you know, that production value that we've been able to deliver by going to professional studio and stuff like that is... It's, inc it's incredible. incredible. Yeah. It really is. I mean, we had, you know, like Brooke said, we had freestanding walls with like tarps on the ceiling with try to do some the, foam like cut up garbage bags yeah to block just out the lights <laughs> yeah block <laughs> out lights done, and then the tape yeah. we could hear the tape guns in the back of people shipping so it added an element to it but now it's it's incredible and then adjacent to a film room we have a photo studio so everything that you see on the website i mean you know tens of thousands of products that are in here they get shot by us um, and when I mean us, I mean, you know, us and the marketing team. And, um, you know, we know how they work. We do a lot of product development in-house. You know, I mean, that's something that Brooke does on the regular. You know, we have a team of, of guys that go, okay, here's a problem. We're going to solve it like this. And we have the ability to have it drawn in-house, printed a prototype in-house. 3D. 
three 3D printers yeah. that run almost nonstop. And that also helps us get products out to people better and quicker. And, you know, it, it shortens that time of having a problem, coming up with a solution, and then running with it all ourselves. So we're always able to tell the story as we want to tell it um, and, and get those products to, to people that much faster. So that brings up a couple of really interesting points I want to get you to talk about. The last time the three of us talked, you all talked about how the DIY mentality has really come into play and how Mudhole has evolved. And now you're talking about also how that that media presence, that social media presence has also played into that DIY kind of being able to watch and learn. But there's also the element that Mudhole itself is a DIY place that you're talking about product development. So talk a little bit about how that mentality, that do-it-yourself mentality has changed the rod building. You know, you mentioned that niche uh, that it had been before, but now it's expanded and the media and the DIY mentality have played right into that. How, how has that influenced what you all do? Yeah, so I, I mean, I refer to it as the maker movement, right? It's it's a almost a cultural shift that I've seen across the board, you know, not just in our industry. I think a lot of people have kind of transitioned back to that hands-on. They want to go do things and build things again. You know, it, it, it's a shift in just like consumerism as a whole. Instead of buying the finished thing, like I, I've noticed at least in certain segments, which is good for us that, you know, they want to shift towards something that they can customize or tailor. And, you know, that mentality, you know, obviously that's what we're built on. You know, that's that's what we do. And that's the people that work here. They're enthusiastic and like we build things daily, you know, and it falls right into what we do. A lot of that translates into our products, our classes, so on and so forth. That kind of supports the ideals of the business as a whole. And, you know, I think that's super important for us like the that whole shift though i mean like we love it like i think rod building went from something obscure to something cool it's trendy you know to where we're starting to engage with younger audiences because it's not just the old guy like that was always the stigma right that it's you know a 75 year old man we mentioned you know locked in his garage or basement or whatever and we still like we love those guys like those are you know core customers for sure but we've been able to evolve that into those younger audiences and you know not even just hardcore anglers which you know is definitely a primary you know component of our customer base but just guys that want to build things and you know there's a lot of satisfaction like we talk about all the time the the like how much fun it is like fishing's fun by itself you don't need to add a whole lot to if you're you enjoy being outdoors and whatnot but when you add the element to where you crafted that rod and you land a trophy fish on something or even you know chris is a a pretty avid fly fisherman tied the fly to to where literally your entire setup your kit you built by hand uh just the satisfaction level to me like it's like goosebumps almost right it it just ups the ante and you know that's really what we're trying to promote here is that one yeah we think that we can teach you the skills provide you the products and the tools to actually build something better you know than you can buy in the store you know a, a rod like we've said it's like an extension of the angler's arm right so any tool the better the tool is the better you're going to do the job you know can you do it with a screwdriver sure but it'd be a lot easier to build that wood deck with a screw gun you know and we kind of take that similar sentiment to to 
fishing, right? You know, to where we really drill into, all right, what's going to make this better? What's going to make us present that lure better or cast this, you know, that distance or whatever, you know, and that's where we can actually get so much more granular opposed to like some of the bigger box stores because, you know, their focus on mass production, obviously it's about margin and cost. So, you know, they're going to try and capture wide scopes of this particular fishery or this particular style and whatnot and because we're custom and you're starting at a blank you can literally build it and tailor it specifically for that build like you know i'm guilty of this to where like i have a specific trip coming up i have to build a new rod for that trip because it's not (laughs) right right right. you know that like yeah that one but I, i want one three inches shorter you know and i know chris has done the same thing to where you know especially back in his tournament days and stuff it's like oh i gotta go wrap up that new crankbait or something because you know that's i gotta have that one for that you know uh, particular style of lure or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I always kind of, when we're walking people through it, cause they always ask like, you know, why would you do this and, and, and whatnot, but it's the, the custom aspect of it. And it, it's more enjoyable if it's, you know, fit to you because your nine year old niece or nephew, uh, or son or daughter or whatever, you know, couldn't necessarily fish with the same rod that a grown man or woman could. And, and, you know, it, not only is it going to probably enhance their enjoyment, but, you know, you can put their name on it. You can let them pick the colors out. You can do all those kinds of things. So, yes, I would say, you know, oh, does it make it, does it make you a better angler? Does it make it more efficient on the water? And, and across the board, it absolutely does because, um, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, yes, I, could, I can go out and buy the same set of golf clubs that Ricky Fowler uses, the same heads, the same shafts, all that stuff, but you know he's got a certain thickness of grip. He has a certain, his pitching wedge is a certain length, his driver is a certain length that, you know, mine might not be that one that's perfect for him. I want it perfect for me. And, and all of those things do make you a better golfer. It would make you a better angler as well. So it's going to make you more efficient on the water, you know, less fatigue, handle a rod that's got the right length of handle for you, the right overall length. All of that really starts to boil down into, okay, yeah, that is the perfect rod for me. We might have the same rod blank. You know, we might be out there throwing that crankbait, but you know, if, if someone has a bigger hand or a longer arm or something like that, you can really tell a difference when you pick up a fishing rod and go, Even yeah. physical disability, you know, we have Absolutely. lots of guys that we help, you know, for overcome sure. things that may be prevent them from getting on the water. Yeah, whether you want, you know, if, if your grip is, is, you know, if it's too thin, sometimes it's tiring for, for men and women that have arthritis and they have a little bit larger grip or a certain cushion or things like that. So it, it really does help you become a better angler and more efficient. And, and you get to enjoy that time on the water that unfortunately not everybody has tons and tons of time on the water. So when you get out there, you want to make it, you know, the most enjoyable you can for what you got. I'm going to come back to that idea of fatigue and customization, but Brooke, you used a verb there twice, tailor, tailoring the rod. And I've heard you in the past compare getting a custom rod to getting a custom tailored suit versus an off the rack suit. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you get lucky and find one off the shelf that fits nice, but if you've ever had anything custom tailored to fit you I mean it's just better like there's no other way to put it um you know and that that's where what we do is you can go as wild as you want in custom rod building to where you are literally fabricating 
just about everything on that rod, you know, anodizing your own guides, shaping your own grips, you know, or, you know, we offer those obviously like with our kits and other things like that to where I consider it more tailoring a rod to where, you know, you're using preformed grips and stuff and it's really fine tuning placements, you know, maybe making color selections, component selections, that type of thing. But that, that tailoring element, I mean, to me, it's, it's the perfect description of what we're doing. You know, it's, it comes down to color fit form, you know, and it, it's, I think translate perfectly to the you know that that analogy of a suit off the rack versus one that you have. I think you've also pointed out that a tailor made rod is a lot cheaper than a tailor made suit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, not necessarily. I, I, I can I can put you into some stuff you know, and that 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 to me brings up a great point is you know even the golf club analogy is that with what we've been able to do with a lot of our other you know additions and developments of other brands and whatnot is that that price point too is we can put you into things and you can build actual true customs you know for a fraction of what it would have cost you because obviously there's expense involved not just in the components and the selection of the rod you know we're a hobby within a hobby right so you actually have to pick up you know a little bit of equipment here and there and you can go big or you can keep it pretty small but you know that that's something that we focused a lot of is you know driving down that injury cost you know to where we don't want it to be unobtainable for you know somebody who's maybe only going to dabble right it doesn't and that was part of breaking down that barrier for those hardcore guys too but yeah generally speaking rods cheaper than suits so So one of the things in what you're talking about you're talking a lot about the benefits of what custom rod building can bring to an angler and when i talked to you all last time one of the things that i realized is the benefit is really starting to understand how that piece of equipment that rod really functions so i want to get into some of the the details of the building and the components so that our listeners can understand this is also why you do this so let's chris the last time you and i spoke um, one of the things you explained to me that i found really interesting was that a lot of the decisions about the components you put into a rod start actually with thinking about the reel. How about talking to us a little bit about why the reel has a lot to do with what you're going to do in building a rod? For sure. So um, whether you've got you know a, a spinning reel or a casting reel, um, going through that process of dialing everything in, it I, I do like to start with a reel, and, and whether it's you know, a friend of mine that I'm going to hand this rod to, or if it's a personal rod of mine and, and using a spinning rod and reel as an example, um, not only having, bringing balance into the game a little bit, um, but there are certain angles and, and, and stuff in spinning reels. So a spinning reel will have an angle of attack that the spinning reel is kind of angled back towards the rod blank. So taking that spinning reel, having the reel that you're going to use on the rod actually will help you determine what guides and the guide placement because when you're building a custom rod and you can put the guides and the reel seat in in, you can put it anywhere you want so you might as well put it where it you know will perform the best for you so we can adjust the handle length based on the rod balance we just did a whole you your last or second to last Facebook yeah. Live was all about rod balance. Yeah, it, it, it was. So it's and, and the great thing about that is you can go to our website, you can go to YouTube and, and all of these people can reference the stuff that we talk about. You know, we don't we don't keep it hidden in you know in, in the books in uh, in the basement. But so having the reel to be able to balance, first of all, it's gonna, you know, 
the fatigue thing that we'll get to later and stuff like that. Um, but then you're going to now use the real and even line choice, whether braid or monofilament, to pick your guide train. So your guide train will then also help you cast farther, be more accurate, things like that. So that's going to be, okay, if I'm going to build a light inshore reel, I'm going to use a, a rod, I'm going to use a size 2500. I'm going to pick very specific guides that are going to match that reel size. Then the placement is going to be based on that reel. You're not going to use those same guides if you're going to, let's say, build a cobia rod and use a size 5000. You're going to have to adjust the guides. You're going to size and where you place them along a different rod blank. So having the reel really, really helps you start to lay everything out and then it helps it come together because yeah we can we can certainly build a custom rod and and get it very close and then go try to get a reel that that does it but you know if you can sit down pick your reel out know that okay i'm going to want to throw 15 pound braid to a fluorocarbon leader get that set up and then you can you know the, the best part is is now we have such a very cool you know showroom warehouse, everything. We invite people to come in. If they can come in, bring their stuff in. We've got a dozen, you know, uh, people downstairs ready to help pick stuff out. Yeah. So that's even if you're not able to physically come here, we have a team dedicated to just literally setting up rods for people all day. Absolutely. And you can Uh, tell them, you know, I've got this size reel. I want to do this kind of this. And they can say, well, that size reel, you're going to need a size 20 guide right. to start with or that I would go to a 25 you know and and that's where having the reel gets you down a path of of getting that rod really dialed in nicely yeah it's not just about the rod the reel is as pivotal like the more information that you have or we have the better will they be able to tailor that rod to your absolutely situation and one of the nuanced pieces of that that i found fascinating chris that you had taught me is you know you walk into a box store and you look at a rod and you know by that first guide is it a spinning rod or is it a bait casting based on but that really when you dig into the nuance there the spinning reel also had they all vary in what you called the cone of flight and how the line peels off so even thinking of a 2500 uh, Daiwa versus a 2500 Shimano versus an Akuma that yep. the cones of flight coming out that the line peels off differently too. Significantly different arbor sizes on the reel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that'll dictate component selection. Of course. Right? Yeah, that to me was one of the most fascinating parts of this is it's not just putting a spinning reel with a spinning guide that it's actually how does the line come off of this reel compared to where the guide is going to be how wide the guide is going to be. Absolutely. Um, so what are some of the other decisions, regard, since we're talking about guides, that help determine guide placement? Do you want to go into static deflection? You want to? Yeah, we can. We could have an entire uh, yeah. show on on this alone. We could do a, an abbreviated. Hence, hence why I'm asking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, you know, and we can kind of tag team this one, Chris. But I mean, generally speaking, it's going to be determined by the blank. You know, the personality of that blank so to speak, you know, and what I mean is the, the action, right? A lot, and this is something like action and power. A lot of people tend to confuse them, but when we're talking about the action, then maybe jumping ahead. On no, I'm glad you're doing that. That was one of the things I was hoping you would explain. <clears throat> now I, I will say though, so. before you get into this, because this question comes up a lot, rod blanks typically 
do not know whether they're supposed to be built as a casting yeah. or a spinning. Now, granted, they most advertiser marketed it as, but uh, yeah, and and now they may you may not identify as a spinning or casting. You might not throw a crankbait on a fly rod blank. Okay, that that's getting a little, you know, but for something that might be deter, you know, might be labeled as a spin jig or something as a mag bass. Those are just talking about the tapers, and then I'll let Brooke go into action and power there. But yeah, just. Everybody does need to keep in mind when they're looking at a rod blank that most of them do not know whether they need to be built spinning or casting. So as a consumer, you know, you can go, well, I really like, you know, that rod blank or whatever, but I, I can't throw a bait caster. Well, that's okay. You can you can build that rod yeah, into a spinning That's gun. just another luxury of rod building, Of course. Right? You know, the, the freedom to Absolutely. do things outside of the box. It's actually, you know, recommended. Of like, course. You like that? Yeah, cool. Do it. Yep. Let us know how it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But, you know, to, yeah, to circle back to the, uh, to the question, you know, I think to actually talk about guide placement, I think to start is best to explain, you know, that action and power dynamic. One, not all actions and powers are created equal. A saltwater offshore action and power isn't going to translate to a mag bass action and power. So one, depending on the type of series, the type of fishing, the type of blank, you know, that'll determine what you're actually looking at. But a lot of times, you know, to clear the air on that, like action refers to the actual bend of the rod. And, you know, you'll see fast, extra fast, moderate. The faster a rod blank is, the less the blank actually, or less of the blank actually flexes. So a super fast rod blank is actually only going to flex towards the tip. Now, going and translating that to how it dictates guide placement, you can tend to spread your guides out a little bit more um, on a faster rod blank and concentrate them in the curvature at the tip. Whereas a moderate rod blank, which is going to be one that flexes further down into the blank closer to the butt, your spacing tends to be a little bit more consistent because your, your challenge is to obviously keep that line from making contact, avoiding sharp angles. So, you know, that flex of the rod is going to dictate a lot of where those guides wind up going because that's when the rod's working, right? Like spacing them out and making them look good, you know, for, oh yeah, that looks nice while the rod's straight. It's not really doing a whole lot. The rod's doing its job when it's under load, right? And that's both casting or hooked up to a fish, right? You know, when you're casting that lure, we've done high speed footage to where you can actually see how much that rod flexes. It's incredible, even with a tiny amount of weight. And if your guides aren't placed properly to where you're creating sharp angles or a lot of contact on the rod blank itself, that, you know, is going to hinder castability. It's going to, you know, potentially create abrasion problems on your line. You know, it, it tends to, you know, there could be stress points on the rod right. that like, you that you really don't want to have happen. So, you know, and all of that is going to be based on, you know, what when I had mentioned to Brooke about static deflection, you know, that's that's something where it's easy enough to just put a rod in a rod holder or said you hold this, we're going to run line through the guides and pull the rod and flex it. And as you look at like Brooke was saying sharp angles, you know, if you have a if you have a guide and the line is in and out in a really sharp angle, 
it's not following that curvature of the blank, whether it's in a more moderate style bend. Yeah, so we'll mock them up. Right? Yeah. As we're setting things up, we'll actually, I mean, we have um, some really great uh, charts and deflection tools that we actually offer to where you're able to put two side by side. So you got a favorite rod that you want to replicate and they don't make it anymore or something like that. We have a wall mounted chart with a grid pattern on it and you can lay up rods right next to each other and actually you know add weight to them and deflect them and then you can use that also then to you know actually go through and align your guides up and you know what we'll do is use you know small rubber bands like ligature ties or we have guide tubing that we'll cut up and it allows us to actually just grab them and slide them around until we get that perfect curvature and you know make those fine-tune adjustments and then also just test cast you know that's where circling back to why is the reel important because i mean you know if you're getting that detailed in it uh having that reel to be able to say, oh yeah, like if I move this stripping guide down half an inch, look at the difference it made. Like, you know, to actually go in, if you're going to go to that level, you know, test casting to me is a must. And I think we showed you some of that high speed footage for sure. You know, it's very interesting when you watch the line come off of a spinning reel because it, when it comes off, it, it, it definitely comes off, you know, in a spiral and it it has this kind of wild look to it. And you saw the difference in setting up a certain guide train where it takes these wide coils and narrows it down and has it going out much more efficiently than a different one where the coils continue out through the rod and then all that stuff. So that's, we try to, you know, cover all those bases. Yeah. One of the things I find really interesting about that is that for a lot of anglers who aren't going to be building their entire arsenal custom at the beginning, that that first experiencing learning about guide placement and learning about how the line comes off also is really informative to how they're buying off the rack as well because it changes how you look at a rod in a box store. You know, we've all seen, we've probably all been that guy who, you know, takes the rod down and is looking down the guides like it's a the gun sight you, you and you're too. wiggling it. You know, <laughs> yeah. And that somehow you're supposed to learn something about the rod that way. Yep. But I, I think that, you know, from what you've shown me about guide placement really changes how I look at rods altogether as well. So it's part of the education process. Yeah, and that, that's one of the cool things too is a lot of the knowledge that we present uh, because we're getting into so much detail you know on a daily basis like whether you're a custom builder or not some of the stuff like the resources that we provide just I think can ultimately make you a more informed angler right like you can should you not decide to build customs at all it really changes your perspective as you said like as a whole, like your arsenal, you take a look at it, you start to understand more. And I think that understanding the why ultimately leads to, you know, better purchasing decisions, whether you're buying out of the box or custom, and will make you better on the water, you know, ultimately catch more fish, stay on the water longer, make a few extra casts, so on and For so sure. forth. It, it makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. So I got a couple more questions about guides before we get into some <laughs> okay. other components. Yeah. But these are so. <clears throat> Um, I noticed recently on a, uh, a Goliath grouper fishing show um, that the guides, the, the fishing guides, not the rod guides, the fishing guides were using guides that aren't in that direct line, but in a spiral, spiral. line around the rod. You know, why, are we, why are we starting to see different kinds of guide placements now, too? You know, uh, with the, the spiral setup, it, it really has kind of evolved from 
some really heavy duty type stuff. And <clears throat> what it does is it lessens the side to side torque when you're fighting a fish of that magnitude. I mean, you know, you're pulling like a Volkswagen bug off the bottom pretty much is what it is right so yeah so you know you've got this big you know 80 wide 130 and of course you're using rope and for for line pretty much so if that rod is is constructed in a way that you know is maybe not on a spine or or something like that that and also kind of manhandling this big reel the rod is going to want to twist in your hand at times Okay, and so now you're going to have to fight this Goliath grouper while you're fighting this rod, um, because if your line is on the top of that rod blank, you know it. Sometimes it can want to to roll over. So what they do is, in terms of a spiral wrap, and the cool thing about that is, is that can be used just as successfully in a you know lighter application bass rod where you're casting, or in the most heavy duty applications with with this and and what it does is it allows you to pull on a fish and it relieves a lot of the torque off of the angler when they're in like high high load situations so it's it allows them to really really put a lot of force on that rod blank uh to get that fish off the bottom yeah we just launched our slow pitch jig series and i'm building four right now and they're all spiral wrap yeah. like that's something it's been around a long time yeah like yeah, it's not it's not something that. we invented or yeah, it's not no, something no, it's, that is it's, just it's brand been new around you know for a while it's just something that i think the general consumer hasn't been exposed to as much you know yeah you <laughs> pick that up uh most people would be like no and just put it right yeah they would be the like wow look at they the really screwed this up it. but now like i think you know i can kind of tie this back into that you know original like that maker movement and whatnot i think that a lot of people are starting to think outside of the box and that's where you're starting to see some of these things like a spiral wrapped rod and whatnot actually make their way onto a tv show like i in years past i couldn't think of anybody actually you know producing them and now you know i know a couple of mid you know smaller oem guys and whatnot that are producing factories yeah wrap and like only rods. that like and they're, yeah. they're like known so, for that and but, all of the rods yeah i think chris pretty much hit it on the on the head to where but one of the main benefits is is taking and i don't know whether you want to call it center or gravity or whatever but that that torque side to side of that reel and by rotating it around to the bottom side as that fishes moves fish moves laterally you know that that torquing on the top as it hits those guides it, it helps eliminate that and I kind of I guess it transitions from fighting the rod to fighting the fish exclusively so yeah. it just is a way that some of those guys on certain builds I think better utilize the action and the power of that rod to fight the fish and not your your equipment yeah because it, it can it can you know wear on your your forearms and everything trying to handle that a big reel with all of that extra torque and stuff so no yeah. i've definitely been there you know yeah many times i've had something hooked up on the bottom to where you got that thing about sideways because it's pulling on you yeah and that helps eliminate some of that for sure so guides are another one of those places where technology and innovation and we're seeing changes to guides they're not just you know guide circle guides anymore and i'm thinking of you know your neighbor here american tackle company with their microwave guide and also um and chris i think you introduced it to me the ab1 roller guides that have the flex feet talk a little bit about what kinds of innovations you're seeing in guide design too 
Yeah, there's there's been a lot over the last few years. I think honestly, probably more than ever. You know, forever yeah. and ever, we just had those standard. You know progression down not a lot of innovation in the actual frames and whatnot you know fuji uh, in i'm drawing a blank on the actual time but like their introduction of the new concept a few decades ago to where that was probably one of the first like whoa this is different and what that was is taking a higher frame and doing a rapid reduction down to smaller guides you touched on the the microwave guides that's probably one of the most unique uh, innovations in the industry is as it relates to you know spinning and casting guides and the principle behind that is you know we we talked about the the cones of line coming off and the microwave guide is actually you know kind of a it's a guide within a guide to where it's got you know a larger OD guide that captures those coils and then has a specially designed brace that puts another smaller guide that then basically shoots the line. And you know what, what that allows it to do is I, I've seen, in my opinion, one of the biggest impacts is like a monofilament because you know we've touched a lot on blanks and reels and whatnot, but your, your line dictates what you're gonna be setting up uh, in a big way as well. Like monofilament's gonna have tremendous amount more memory coming off of the spool than braid is. So something like that, it allows it to capture those coils and convert it to a straight line. So that energy then is just transferring towards making your cast rather than having lines slap all the way down uh, and you guys can't see my hand movements right here. But, uh, <laughs> oh, we got cameras. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's funny because it is a little, you know, it makes people kind of step back and think where maybe you would think as a, as a person that's first coming into rod building or you would see these little tiny guides or you'd be like, man, I'd, it's probably harder to get the line to go through those little guides. You would think, oh, well, maybe that's going to create more friction and it's not going to cast as far. So I want like larger guides where the line doesn't even touch it. But in theory it's the quicker that you can capture those coils and get them headed in that direction, you have a lot less wasted lateral movement rather than movement going out the end of that rod blank. Yeah, it's and less friction. Yeah, know, it's, and it's it's incredible how, you know, and when we when we showed you that that slow that slow mo stuff, it's it's like, oh, okay, I can see why that this rod now throws twenty feet, you know, farther because the line is captured and sent out rather than just ricocheting off the center of these guides, all the walls of the guides, the whole way out. So you're just losing a lot of energy to the outside rather than getting it going in the right direction. And then to touch on, you know, the offshore market, you mentioned AV1, like those guys, you know, they're Italian designers making parts for Ferraris that were just super passionate about sport fishing. So, I mean, they literally built, you know, it's a hinged foot, you know, and you'll find that a lot of the, the stuff, the, the decisions about even, you know, what and how the guides are laid out and, you know, it all ties together, right? And, you know, what it's doing is we're basically trying to limit the impact on the action of that rod. You know, we don't want to make it stiffer by putting, you know, a bunch of large guide feet up towards the tip and whatnot. And the AB1, for example, what they did is by hinging their feet at, at the base, it allows that rod to just flex like nothing has been attached to it. Because you figure, you know, each one of those roller guides, you know, has a 
two, three inch footprint that you're adding, you know, basically a brace that you're tying on there. And each time you add one, you know, it is going to stiffen up that rod a bit. So what, what they really want is they had actions and they, they just felt that the guides shouldn't be impacting their rods the way they were. So they came up with, you know, an alternative by hinging the feet. You know, it's it's pretty wild design, and you know, having uh, fished a few of them, you definitely notice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It really yeah, is. As you guys are talking, um, the word energy keeps coming up, and I'm, you know, I'm reminded how much of rod design is really about energy displacement and energy use. And you know, fly rodders have always talked about loading a rod and getting that energy into the rod before release. And I, you know, we don't usually talk about energy and loading the power of a rod when we're talking about anything outside of fly fishing too. But that's, I mean, it's really about energy displacement here. Yeah, my high school physics teacher could see me now. (laughs) (laughs) All that stuff that I, you know, told them I'd never be using, you know, I guess, uh, uh, if, if we're doing I a lot of fun the with the fishing it. industry right. uh, how much physics i actually consider on a day-to-day basis yeah. when yep. we're making product decisions or development decisions it's actually pretty funny how it goes full circle you know we've been talking about guides and we've been talking about reels and line but we haven't put a lot of attention to the blank other than some basic introduction and from my understanding you know that's what most people think is that's where we begin is the blank and um blanks are now generally fiberglass carbon fiber but how do we think about blanks these days too? I mean, that, that's a that's another technological advancement and a big big thing that's yeah. changed. The materials, the technology going into the development, the production, all of that's advanced drastically. Um, I'm a, Chris, you can take lead on this. Sure, does a great job explaining. You know, it's when when choosing a rod blank. You know, there's there's obviously, and Brooke had talked a little bit about our. Uh, power and action and you know you also have to bring materials into it and and we have a library of materials that we have the ability you know at our disposal um, in different strains of graphite Uh, not only do we have different strains of graphite for one you know strain but then we also take and blend multiple strains of graphite together to get the action and the power that we want and and you know uh more of a graphite blended rod is something out of like a crankbait series. So you want the lightness of a graphite rod, but you want a little more durability, and then you also want a certain flex in that rod. So we have the ability to use graphite in a way that you used to only be able to use fiberglass because, you know, the strain of graphite you know, was maybe a little too high. You couldn't get those that kind of an action in it. And then the guys were like, well, I like it soft and things like that, so we're going to use glass, whether it's S-glass or, or whatever. The interesting thing about it is is they just wear you out because they're just however many times heavy as the graphite rod is. So now we've been able to take multiple strains of graphite and different resin systems because you're taking a graphite sheet that actually is impregnated with a resin. So it's pre-preg. You're going to roll that around a mandrel that has a certain taper to it. That taper is what's going to be, you know, your butt diameter is this big and the tip diameter is that big, and it tapers in a certain manner that gives you a moderate fast action, a fast action, and an extra fast action. So actual human hands roll this, you know, around a mandrel, and then you bake it, and then out comes a rod blank, and it's sanded and painted and whatever. But the interesting thing is, is we have this huge library of, you know, this is an ultra high modulus graphite, and then this is 
a low modulus graphite. Yeah, I mean, our, our, like our Elite X, for instance, and the MHX lineup, you know, the materials that we're using in that, like, we're competing against guys in, like, the aerospace and, like, industry and stuff like that to where it's, you know, not to drop names or anything, but oh, yeah. so-and-so just bought this allotment of material and they're making things significantly more advanced than rod blanks with them. So, you know, it's that that's the level in the grades of the carbon fiber that we're working with. And I think one of the, you know, touching on like and kind of expand, it's not a one-size-fits-all type thing necessarily with material. Right. You know, and that's one of the, the cool things that we've been able to do. Todd Vivian, who's worked with us for, you know, about the last 10 years, he was the lead blank designer and operations manager for Lamaglass for about 20 years. So we we have the luxury of having, you know, one of those guys that, I mean, he's done it. He's rolled blanks, and, you know, that's where a lot of the knowledge, you know, we've learned have been from him and obviously experiencing, you know, the process over the years. But, you know, those, those levels of graphites, like, you know, the technology in them, we mentioned the resins, you know, just the, the styles of resin going in them to, you know, we're using what's called nano resin now, just like the bonding capabilities and stuff like structurally, we're being able to push the envelope to where we're using less material now, you know, uh, to where these blanks are getting to the point to where you have a strength ratio of something 10 years ago that was five times the physical weight of it but you know the level of graphite and you know the resin and all the other you know technology going into it allows us to produce this super you know ferrari of a rod blank it's very cool to have something that's you know half the weight and and twice the strength that it used to be and you're like oh wow you know and then you know there's still a place for fiberglass too. Like your your material decision is going to depend on, you know, your end use too. Like I wouldn't recommend a guy go and build a super high modulus that's fishing a headboat, right? You know, or a rail rod or something like right. that. You know, as you progress with that higher modulus, not this, their, their durability is there, but their sensitivity to damage and whatnot, like, you know, they're finesse rods for a reason, you know, and so like that, that push to go super high modulus for everything, like a lot of it's marketing, in my opinion, like there's a place for it, like, and if you know what you're doing, and you want to have, you know, just an amazing rod, yeah, absolutely, but I don't recommend it for everything, you know, and that's where fiberglass still has a home. Like a lot of my bottom rods, for instance, I want that parabolic action, you know, and stuff like that. And then just the durability, you know, and why they're more durable. It's not to say that, you know, like graphite is less durable. It's the amount of rotations of material around that mandrel to get that strength ratio. You're going to have a lot thicker material to play with, which in turn makes it just more durable because you nick it, you know, or, you know, drop it and you know whack it in a car door or whatever you're not cutting through the you know the layers of material that could potentially create a failure point it's a lot more durable and then even to go on to the blending of of graphites we we have composite to where you're taking two-thirds carbon fiber and rolling in fiberglass tips right and that's allowing us to achieve another you know a different both weight and action ratio you know our, our offshore lineup you know, you'll see a lot of composite stuff like that to where they want to reduce the physical weight by taking that bottom two-thirds and converting it to carbon fiber but they really want that softer tip that fiberglass allows and will actually twist in fiberglass towards that top one-third so i mean when i say one size fits all like or doesn't fit all rather you know it's not just you know this material that like we're literally constantly playing with 
you know, different materials and experimenting and having someone like Todd, who's just a seasoned blank developer with decades of experience, allows us to actually literally just be at the forefront and trying stuff. Like we're constantly, we have blanks flowing in here daily on new stuff that we're trying to launch. I mean, we've got a lot, a lot of stuff in the works. Uh, and unfortunately, everything's been taking a little bit longer than uh, we're used to in years past. Yeah. But, but, you know, that's, we're, we're always trying to push the envelope both you know, in materials and then it allows us to play with diameters too. He mentioned, you know, the, the mandrels and whatnot to where we're taking things that used to have an inch and a half butt diameter, you know, and starting to walk them back to three quarters of an inch. You know, it allows the overall profile of an offshore rod. All of a sudden you're able to reduce the weight in your components and open up this whole new world of uh, other stuff that you can add to it that traditionally in years past you wouldn't be able to do just because of the limitation of the the size of the rod blank you know so is that that's that's a lot of what we're doing on the back end and you know those materials that go into it allow us to to make those decisions and kind of just play with development and design on some cool new stuff yeah because it's it's very cool to see where we'll get a rod blank in and todd will bring it over and say you know we're using this material from this series but instead of using the resin that we were using in that series, we're taking the resin that's in this series and seeing what happens when these two things. And sometimes it's a home run and sometimes it's not. But we bring it in and go, okay, well, that didn't change it enough. Or, But it, it can. You can have a strain of graphite with a certain resin that reacts a certain way. And then if you change the resin, you can get a different action and power out of the same rod blank. And then it's like, okay, well, that's good because that's for that. And then this is for that. So it's it makes it really, really nice. Yeah, they, when we can... they, each material, each resin, they all have unique characteristics. And it's finding that happy medium, you know. And at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, I, I try to tell people not to focus on just what's the best or what they think is the hottest or the coolest or the newest. It's what's going to get the job done for you, right? It's, it's what you need to fish, you know, to make that trip happen or land that fish, you know, and you have to actually, you know, recognize some of those things to where, you know, the top tier lineup may not be the best option for you, even though you got, you, you're sitting on, you know, a, a fat wallet that you dedicated, this is what I want to spend on it, you know, like our team here, like it's not all about making that big sale either, like we're going to push you into, well, you know, I know you, you had your heart set on this, but we really think that this one, even though it is a bit lower modulus, is going to get the job done better for you. So it's, it's finding, you know, that right fit, too, as it relates to materials, not necessarily just the, you know, the marketing behind it or, you know, the, the price tag. Yeah, I love hearing you talk about it like that because it opens up thinking about what goes into, you know, the, the blanks. But I also like that you're talking about it in terms of playing with it because it seems to me that, you know, it gives the angler the opportunity to really play around with different models, different approaches to learn what I like best, you know. And for, for a lot of years, you, know, you had your favorite rod, and your favorite rod may be your favorite rod because your dad gave it to you or your favorite rod because you, it was the first time you had bought your own rod. But now finding your favorite rod has a lot to do with I played with this, I worked this out, I built the one that I wanted, and, you know, I got to where I can fish it the best. I also like hearing that you, uh, you, you mentioned Lamaglass. I mean, you know, phenomenal company what Tom Posey and Sean Kearney and those guys have done out there have been uh, you know a great a uh, great company so um, I think the components we haven't talked about yet are the butt and the real seat so let's talk butts and real seats for a second so how does that play into all these decisions 
Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, the handle and the real seat section comes into play with, you know, um, what you're going to be doing with it. But that's also something that's going to be fit to you as, you know, um, as a personal preference, you know. How long are your arms? How big are your hands? Um, you know, how are you going to be utilizing that rod when you're fishing it? Because, you know, we can go around, you know, the hundred or whatever employees that we've got. I can go downstairs and talk to Bob, who is, you know, been doing this since, you know, longer than I've been alive, you know, and he is very, you know, steadfast. And I use a size 17 spinning reel seat and I use this length of handle. I don't do either one of those things. So, and it's not because it's right or it's not because it's wrong, but it's because that is what is comfortable for him and it yeah. allows him to fish longer on the water. Have, and I think with like handles and you can lump real seats into it, you have utility, style, and comfort, right? You know, it's, and again, it's going to come down to which blend of those things that you want to achieve what's going to make you happiest if you want it to look cool and you're willing to sacrifice this or that, you know, for something flashy, great, you know, but marrying all three of those, you know, that that'll give you like tons of different options, but you know, it comes down to cork EVA newer kid on the block would be the carbon fiber composite grips, stuff like that. Wind grips is a, pri a you know, a really good example of another newer, um, uh, component uh right. on the block over the last few years i don't know if you've had a chance to play with any of those no but, i haven't so i mean it's your win is you know a major player in golf right when grips are uh big time um and what they did is they adapted their win polymer it's their scientific you know uh specific material and started building fishing grips and i mean we have an entire in our mhx lineup dedicated to them they have a huge selection of different colors, shapes, and designs with those. But, you know, it, it comes down to preference on style. Then, you know, utility, you know, does this make sense? doesn't always have to. If, if you put a compelling enough case, uh, I won't argue with you. I'll maybe be like, I'm never going to work as I walk away. But, uh, you know, I'll let you try it. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, comfort, you know, because your hand's on it, right? That, that's where you are connecting with that rod is that real seat and that handle. You got to hold it and you got to hold it all day when you're fishing it. And I, for me over eight, nine years ago, a, the handle and real seat of what factory rod that I was fishing is what got me into rod building because I liked everything about it, but it, it hurt my hand in terms of, you know, when you have a bait caster or even a spinning rod, you know, you can adjust your hand a little bit, but, there's not a whole lot you can do if it's like cramping your hand a certain way or doing whatever. So I remember driving, I was about two and a half hours from Mudhole back in the day there. And uh, I drove in and talked to Bob downstairs and well, we were on one floor then, but Bob works downstairs now. But so um, I talked to Bob and walked in and went, I want something like this that doesn't have this awful real seat and handle set up. And here we are, 2022. Yeah, the, the handle, it's funny as you talk about, you know, the beauty in rod building, right? You know, which is something we haven't really touched on. The actual, like some of these things are works of art. Yeah. One of my favorite parts in setting up a rod where, like, I think you can actually make them beautiful and elegant and whatnot is setting up a handle. Like, I really enjoy 
making a nice handle and that can be either using out of the box stuff and just you know setting it up clean and perfect like I, I just really like that or you know custom shaping you know to where like I know guys that are taking and mapping their hands out right and you know measuring the length of their this finger and the distance between the finger and the thumb and then they're actually shaping the grip and adding a contour or a palm swell or something like that to make it ergonomic right you know and the ergonomics go into that and especially like tournament guys and stuff like that like that are making just you know, obscene amounts of casts, like that makes a lot of difference. You know, if, if you have over a, the course of a multi-day event, for instance, to where you got a check on the line, sometimes cashing a check and going home empty-handed, it could be the difference of those last few casts. So, you know, like that type of thought that goes into the placement and the handle design and whatnot, that's going to make a big impact over, you know, how that rod performs for you as well. Because, I mean, like I said, that that's your connection point. That's where that rod is now becoming part of your hand and your arm you know it's where you're connecting with it and why wouldn't you want to make it as comfortable as possible you're you're getting into the last two things i wanted to talk about components and we've talked about a little bit about fatigue and we've talked a little bit about disability but let's talk first before we get to the aesthetics to the beauty of these rods let's let's talk a little bit about that relationship between the rod as an object and the body of the angler because you've been alluding to throughout this conversation that these things are connected you know there's a there's an important part of what you're holding in your hand and how your arm works and your own exhaustion points and things like that. Talk about that relationship between the angler and the rod from a physical standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, uh, as, as simple as, uh, you know, bringing my wife into play where I take her fishing and she has a fishing rod that I built for her because she was using something that I had and was, you know, like holding up her arm was like, this is poking me here and it's like rubbed a spot in my arm for fishing it all day long. And, you know, you joke a little bit about it, like, ah, quit complaining, you know, keep fishing. But really all we did is then take the same blank, set it up the same. If you were to see the two side by side, you would just go, oh yeah, that, that handle is really just like an inch and a half shorter. All the components are Subtle identical. little changes can make big difference. Very little. And then now She's like, oh, it, it casts better. It feels better in my hand. It doesn't hit me a certain way all day. I can catch fish. I can yeah. do all that. The way I, like, we're all different, yeah. right? Your arm length's different than mine. Like the likelihood that you and I can go in and grab, you know, go back to tailored suits that we could share a jacket is highly unlikely. You know, so you take and translate that to factory rods on the shelf. You know, they're all the same. You know, for the most part, you may find vendors that have some variation, but you, you generally see a pretty standard progression and, you know, the placement of those real seats, you know, nine inches, 11 inches, whatever. It's, you can basically look across the rack and see all the real seats in a line as you transition from manufacturer to manufacturer. And that's not knocking them. They've, they've, a lot of them have it right, but what they don't have is that fine tune, you know, to where, yeah, they're making it in mass to where it's good enough. What we're trying to do is make it better, right? And that's where we're all different. My hands, my arm length, very different than, you know, Chris. Like, and being able to shift those components around to where I want it to land in the crutch of the elbow, that may mean three quarters of an inch difference than what Chris likes it. Same rod where we may have the same end game, but mine has a, you know, a slightly longer, you know, rear grip or, you know, a slightly larger foregrip. That's one big for me, like offshore rods. Like I like, I have a big hand, like, and 
I've always found like on a rod that I'm actually going to use the foregrip, you know, something that, you know, I'm bearing down on. Most of them are too small, right? So like I add extra length because I don't want to have to grab the rod blank. I have this nice, comfortable EVA grip here, but I can get one hand on and then half of it and then the rest of it's up on the blank. So when I'm building out, you know, a pitch rod or something that I plan on, you know, hopefully putting something with a, a little bit of power behind it when it bites the end of that hook. Like, you know, I'm adding a little bit of length to my foregrip because I want to be able to support both of my hands. And my hands are, you know, a little bit bigger than, you know, the next guys or whatever. Like, and it's making those types of adjustments. Like, those are the decisions that you have to consider, you know, outside of, again, you know, the, the looks and whatnot. But, you know, yeah, the best way I can say it is, you know, we're all different and, making those little adjustments can, you know, significantly improve how you feel, you know, while you're using that rod and the comfort of using it as a whole. For sure. And and I know we had looked at a certain spinning reel setup because, you know, a spinning reel is very unique in terms of, you know, when you are holding that spinning reel and, you know, it has the reel stem. So some, some people hold it like three fingers in front. Some people hold all behind. When you're laying out rods, you think about things that you've never thought about before. Like, yeah, whether you're two fingers in front of the stem, you're three fingers, you're one finger, where, like, show me how you hold the hold it. Yeah. You know, and then, you know. And then go from there, pick your, your different size. And we have even gone as far, you know, I've been down in, you know, the depths of the warehouse with a real seat and just looking at other real seats and taking like unscrewing a piece off of that one and to see if it will actually screw on this one and go okay no that's not long enough and then we go to try to find another grip and another piece and go oh and then all of a sudden you're like yeah we have some weird conversations yeah yeah i go that's the one you know but it, it is funny you know when you when you have everybody working in the warehouse and they're and they come around the corner to pick items and there's like five of us all huddled in a thing you know and he's looking at a one fighting butt, and I'm looking at the other, and you're almost having an argument about, like, we're and talking about fighting the, butts. The Planet of the Apes music subtly starts going <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so that's, that's where it all boils down to, like he was saying. When, it's, when it fits, it, it is just an incredible, you know, to go from a factory one that's like, ow, this really hurts my hand to something that's, you know. And that's what got me into it. I mean, it's simple as that. It's excellent. So we've talked about the components. We've talked about the benefits. We've talked about the interaction with the body. But one of the things I think a lot of people notice immediately about custom building is the beauty of these rods and the absolute amazing things you can do to make your rods look unique, look fantastic. Talk a little bit about the aesthetics here. Yeah, I mean, it's a proven fact that nice looking custom rods catch more fish than uh, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> they certainly catch more anglers yeah right. i can tell you you know as i transitioned you know i i started this super young because my dad got into it but you know i always thought it was really cool rolling up to the dock and having every guy or girl roll you know hey, can I see that? Like, you know, to where we're unloading or whatever, and, you know, we've got a full lineup of customs. Because, I mean, you know, no matter what your personality is or whatever, like, you can create literal works of art, right? Like, things that, you know, may not even look like they should be used, but, you know, they're perfectly functional rods, but the amount of hours that some of these, you know, men and women in this industry, you know, or this hobby put into these things I mean it's astounding and like it it really like there are some people that you know I'm just in awe of because like they've taken 
you know, this craft and, you know, from an artistic standpoint, just up the ante. You know, it, it, it's something to where you have simple little decorations and dormant that look incredible, and then you can go full-scale, six-axis, you know, thread wraps, weaves, so on and so forth, to where they have hundreds of hours into the thread work or the handle work or whatever, and to where I'm like, you know, you better hang that on a wall, yeah. but they're like, no, it's, it's going and hitting the water. Like, you know, they, they, get, they get to look good. Uh, and and we've fishing. definitely turned a lot of people into uh, – into into rod snobs, I guess. I don't, I don't know what else I'm, it I'm would be. I'm a rod snob now because of uh, yeah, <laughs> what and, we do. And it's as little as, you know, some people, you know, they'll walk and they'll pull a rod off the rack and they'll look to see how straight the guides are. Or they'll look at the thread thread wraps and they'll be like, look at all the gaps in yeah, these I'm thread wraps. Yeah, I'm looking wrap. at the pulls. Like, I'm looking at yeah. the, the blue lines. And they, it's going to be, you know, it's going to fish the same. So, you know, for the people that are just starting out, you know, I'm, I'm a great uh, – you know, person to lean on for the people that are just starting out because I am not a rod builder that builds like super artistic type type builds. And, and that was, I think, because when I got into it, I was tournament fishing and I just, you know, I was like Southwest Airlines. I had the same reel seat, the same grip, the same thread, and it was just black thread with that. And we just, we put them and we put them on the boat and we fished them hard as a tool, you know. Um, so some people that are kind of getting into it, you know, they're like, oh, God, do I have to, like, make it? It can uh, be intimidating. Yeah. When you look at the, the full-blown customs, the guys and girls that are, like, doing the crazy stuff, like, I certainly think it can be – it's a great, like, you know, for us fishing, you know, to use the analogy, it's a hook, you know, the words, ooh, what is that? But – in that same respect, you know, you, you see a lot of the response. Oh, no, I can't do that. That's yeah. not for me. That's too much. It's a lot of the same mentality that fly tires have, yeah. too, right? There's those who are dying flies for the artistic quality, and then there are those of us who are turning out 30 deceivers in an hour just so yeah. we have them, right? Right. You know, so. But yeah. that's that's the best part that I always tell people. It, it You know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to look pretty, but if you go through the steps to pick the real seat, to do the proper guide spacing, to wrap your guides and all that, you know, our, our shorthand is it'll fish. It'll fish. Yeah. And it'll fish better than anything off the rack, even if it's not. And we do our best to make sure that we can accommodate both segments of builders, the utilitarian guys that are making tools and those that are, well, truthfully, three sets to where they're kind of in the middle, you know, dabbling a little. And then you got just the hardcore. I dabble a little bit, yeah. But some of. No, we all do. But, you know, the more you build, like, I find myself like, Personal builds and whatnot are usually pretty Spartan, um, but like builds for somebody like if you want it to be sentimental, you want somebody like as a gift or something like that, you know, adding some snake skin or abalone or tying in these other decorative materials or marbling, you know, uh, it, it as a presentation to somebody that, yeah. whoa. Like, you know, that, that factor, right? Like, and it means a lot. It's cool to like be able to see somebody like, Holy yeah, crap, like you really did this. Yeah. yeah like, right. and you know, it makes me feel good. It makes them feel good. You know, so everybody wins. Yeah. I was just telling somebody the other day, one of my favorite gifts to give is I'll tie six different flies, put it in a nice fly box That's and awesome. they're all, ha, you know, just jaw drop. And I can see doing that with the rod. So given that, what would be the piece of advice you would give to someone wanting to get started? Other than come to Mudhole. <laughs> well, yeah. first piece of advice is come to Mudhole.com. Yeah. No, I mean, it's one of those things that the 
education behind it is something that we take very seriously, right? And that's where you'll see a lot of our attention, both, you know, on model.com and the resources, a lot of what Chris is doing on a day-to-day basis is centered around developing that knowledge base to make it available to people that, one, this is a thing, you can do this, you know, as a whole, and then here's how. Here's what you need to do it. So, you know, my best advice is start small. You know, how many guys and girls out there, avid anglers, have a stack of rods in their corner of their garage? This is a, like, I see it almost every garage I go to if they're a fisherman. So right there, you have a perfect entry point, right? Don't worry about building a one-off custom if you're, you know, maybe a little intimidated or maybe just trying to dabble. You can go in and buy some of the lower grades of equipment because there is some, you know, that outlay to get into the hobby. I mentioned it early on, um, and it's something that we've really done a lot with is lowering that barrier to entry by, you know, just a price point thing to where, I mean, over the last five, seven years, I think – We've halved it, maybe less, on what it would cost to actually get started in this craft. But, you know, not to lose scope of what we're talking about, you have a handful of rods there that are missing a guide, a tip, whatever. That is a perfect segue into rod crafting, you know, is rod repair. So that's my advice if you're on the fence about it. Give it a shot repairing some of the stuff you already have. If you find that tolerable, then we can talk about, you know, setting you up with your uh, next major build. And then, you know, the other side of that is, you know, our classes, be it virtual um, to where we have multiple times a week a collection of instructors that will go on through Zoom. It's, you know, I know everybody's kind of tired of Zoom and whatnot, but the detail and attention that you get in those opposed to like, not to say that you don't get it in the big ones, but you get a lot of one-on-one time, um, you know, and those are like for the cost, you get all the equipment to start it up plus a full build and hours of individual instructor time. Um, and then, you know, also just our, our in-person classes, which we host here at Mudhole and travel all around the country um, for, you know, around 200 bucks, you're going to, get a kit that has all of the equipment, all the supplies you need to continue building, a two-day seminar to where you're coming in and building a rod start to scratch, and you get to take the rod with you. So for the cost of a you know nice store-bought rod, you're getting all of the equipment to jump in, and that breaks through that usual hesitation, right, to where you're trying to do this on your own. And not to say that it's it's difficult, but, you know, it's a learning curve, right? You know, so my my second bit of advice is if you're jumping on your own, it's just be patient. You know, it's it's just rod building. It's just thread. You know, it's it's all stuff that if you don't like it, cut it off, you know, and then lean on us. You know, that's the, that's the, the last part is that we – pride ourselves on being a resource especially for new generations of builders we want to make ourselves as available either preemptively you know with all the the videos and information and content that chris produces and puts on there and then in person here via phone email facebook message whatever and then you know to tie it into like the the facebook live facebook group you know we have a collection of over 20,000 yep, yep just reached 20,000 that like it's literally like the idea behind it was just we wanted a digital community space for people to go in and ask like hey you know I'm looking to get into this and it's amazing you jump in and you'll get 35 45 comments of 
here's what I did, you know, I love this, you know, and it's just great feedback. We purposely keep it. It's not a sales channel. It's not, you know, the customer service channel. Like it is just meant to be a community about the craft and about, you know, perpetuating the education and your skills and passing on that knowledge and that information to help those around you, your peers within the hobby, you know, be better at what they do. And that that's kind of what we're all about and what we're we're trying to push as a whole. Yeah. And, you know, we, we really take a lot of pride in, you know, like I said, I think we're on episode 86 for, for the live show. Um, and, and we get emails um, that, you know, from the last shows, some guys like I'm, I've been doing this for 30 years and I can usually get one or more tips out of every show that you, that you guys do. Um, and you know, it's, it's Hunter and I that, that host the show. And then of course, you know, we've got four cameras. Sometimes we have a document camera. Sometimes we have an overhead camera. We've got a camera that pans. We've got a zoom camera. We've got, you know, we're, we're able to do a lot of things. It's, it's not just, you know, like somebody's we're girlfriend. We're doing our best to up. make sure to capture any Everything. questions or angles so that everybody can see what we're doing. It's it, not exactly. just up there to talk. It's we're, we're demonstrating techniques that we're hoping that you're going to be able to take on for sure. at your workbench and stuff. Like and we've that. got anywhere. I mean, we do, we do this, you know, on a Tuesday night once a month or so, and we still have between, yeah, we've tonight. got tonight. Yeah, we have a show tonight. Um, but we, we've got, you know, between three and 500 people that watch it live, That's which is, is pretty wild. Yeah, and, uh, and then, but I think it's a testament the to the team. after, I mean, it's several right. thousands oh, of thousands. views. Like the reach is incredible. It's all cataloged. They can go back and look. And, and, and that's, that's the best part about it is, is we love being, you know, the, the people that teach it and they can go in at any time dive right in you know the like brooks said the barrier to entry is pretty low you know i think the one our, our famous kit you know the fsb2 is like 159 bucks um and the parts and pieces you get in that kit like a hand wrapper and a rod dryer you know i'm almost 10 years in i'm still using that you know it's not because oh i've i now have the you know the thousand dollar kit no i'm i'm still using the hand wrapper because i'm good with it it's the amount of space I have. So it's, you're never really going to grow out of it. You know, you, you will excel and, and get better and be able to use power wrappers and things like that if, if you want. A lot of it's designed to be scalable as well. Yeah. The equipment, that introduction into it is you can start small and not have to throw that away as you develop into the craft. If you want to get more advanced, like we purposely, you know, went in and made, you know, it's like a grow as you grow setups and stuff like that. So, you know, it's something to where, you know, if you're on the fence about it and, you know, all right, is this light duty one, is it actually going to get the job done? Yes, it is. And should you decide that you want to expand into more professional levels of equipment, that stuff that you've already bought, you know, is a good foundation that you can build onto, and then eventually you can adapt and to go into different directions and whatnot. But yeah, it, it, it all, you know, plays into, you know, a lot of thought has gone into try and make it as easy for people to get into the craft uh, as possible. Excellent. So we've got a wrap up question that we ask all the guests on the fishing professor show. But before I get to that wrap up question, because we're here at mud hole and because we've been talking about building, I'm going to twist that question for you guys real quick. And so the first thing I want to ask each of you is what's the favorite, your favorite rod that you've built and what's the rod you still want to build? Hmm. So many. <laughs> uh, gosh, what's funny is I have 
this one five series St. Croix that I built 10 years ago. It's a, it was supposed to be a casting, right? It's a 5C68 MXF. Um, that one is probably one of my favorites just because it was an early rod. You know, this is before we had launched, you know, MHX and whatnot. It was something that I, I did with my dad and I still have this rod. I don't fish as much anymore, but it's my favorite because he let me come in and this is when he was still floating the bill. He told me that I got to pick out the components. So he left me to my own devices. He's yeah. off wandering around and he came back in and I had, I don't know, 220 bucks in guides uh, <laughs> laid out. And he just did one of these and then let me do it. But yeah. like, I've abused that rod, like, just because, like, it was always my favorite. So, like, I mean, it's a extra fast, medium power. I mean, in short, technically, it was a bass rod, but I've caught cobia on that thing. You know, I've thrown plugs for Bonita. I've caught redfish, everything. So that's probably my favorite. My current must-have, which I have in progress right now, is our new slow pitch series that we just launched in the MHX offshore jigging, just because it's such a wild technique in the rod design. I don't know if you've had much time to spend around slow pitch, you know, but the... It's like trying to wrap your mind around it Like, it's almost comical how small these rods are and the amount of power that they have in them. Like, it's like, you know, I basically uh, equate it to I'm going to go yellowfin fishing with a toothpick. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> and you got the, these big kind of tall reels yeah, on this little yeah, pencil I mean, it's, thin. It's but, a pencil it's, thin. Like, right. But so that, that right now is my hot button must-have build, and I've already kicked off the uh, the progress on that because the, the yellowfin are starting to uh, yeah. show up. So I, uh, I fully intend on hammering some at the buoy with one of those. In, in, in short order. Yeah. How about right. you, Chris? Um, so I have a, it's a, out of the MHX, it's an Elite Pro Series. It's an NEPS 82 LMF. So it's a, uh, it's a light, moderate, fast. And I'm, I'm a big flats guy. Um, that rod, I've caught bonefish and permit on it. Um, I've handed it to people that have caught their first bonefish in their whole life. They've never done it. Um, catch a bonefish on it uh, my wife's caught permit on it um, we actually caught a certified igfa world record length uh class bonefish on that rod we're still using it um it it looks it doesn't look like hell but it, it you can tell it's been fished and it's it's one of those that's i don't know it seems like the fish always eat on that one even though I've got six matching ones, you know, <laughs> they're all literally identical. Uh, that one's, you know, got some pitting in the cork and it's seasoned. And it's one of those, like, don't you dare clean that cork grip on that rod. Right. Don't, <laughs> don't you dare touch it. Yeah. Um, so that one, that one's pretty special. I know that, uh, I, uh, if, if we do happen to, you know, lose that rod blank and it, and it has to be retired, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it in here in the building for sure. Uh, cause that one's a special one, but, uh, for, for something that I haven't done yet, um, I've never caught like a really big blue Marlin, uh, even though I, I'm not a big trolling guy, you know, I think it would be cool because some of the offshore rods that I've built, um, you know, we've even caught like sailfish on a bass flipping rod. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's one of those, like, that's pretty cool, but I would like to catch a big blue Marlin, you know, something maybe over like six, um, on you know a really cool offshore 
you know, do something that's, uh, you know, a neat handle, do a little bit of thread work on it because I don't typically do that stuff. And, and those rod blanks give you, you know, a lot of surface area to do some cool stuff on where that small NEPS blank that I have is, I can't do a whole lot with. I don't have as much surface area. It's a bigger canvas. Yeah, I got a, I got a big canvas. And that's something that I can sit down and, you know, kind of do that. I'll probably see if I can't swipe some AB1, those, uh, the carbon fiber guides, you know, and, and go on that trip. Cause that would be also like a real special trip. That's not something that I do. Well, you're kind of anticipating the final question that we ask everybody, which is what's your grail fish? What's that fish that's out there that you still want? But also, I mean, given what you guys do, not only what's the fish you want, but what's the rod you want it on too? Because I mean, going and getting the blue is one thing, but going and getting the blue on the rod that you tied. Yeah, and strapping in on something big is that's pretty cool, you know. So Brooke, what's your grail fish? Uh I mean I'm a big tuna guy and like so actually the uh the team was actually up just up with uh, the roster rocket dudes uh and they they basically caught it, but you know, just a monster bluefin. Like I want one of those ones that, you know, you have to get a crane to pull it yeah. out of the boat. That's probably my yeah. goal. I caught a big tuna in, in Panama uh, one time on a popper, and that was – it wasn't as big as, as those up there, but that one I could see where that one would be yeah. pretty special. Yeah, I've done, yeah. you know, I think mid-90s on a yellowfin, but, you yeah. know, I, I want that. Yeah, know, that 250. Yeah. Big I'm, dog. I want or like more. 400. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. well, if, you're, I'm going, if I'm going grail, we're going full, I was gonna say, full, right. uh, You're the guy that can handle it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. No well, guys, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you being on the Rodcast. And for all of you out there in the listening crew, be sure to check out the great resources at mudhole.com. And if you can get over to Oviedo to check out some hands-on learning, you really should do it. I mean, it's a great way to learn about everything you're doing with the rod. Um, Chris and uh, Brooke, been great. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. Thank you so much. It is time to take a break, a bourbon break, that is. And let me tell you, I could use a belt today, but my mind is on fishing something fierce. So I'm going to pour a few fingers of a bourbon that was designed with anglers in mind. I'm talking about Walker's K Bourbon today, a bourbon that was co-founded by Stephen Bush, who is the son of August A. Bush III. That's right, the Bush family of Anheuser-Busch. So the whiskey comes out of a great tradition of beverage expertise, and the bush forms the bushes then formed King Spirit. Now, according to the press around Walker's K Bourbon, the younger Bush decided to develop the bourbon to honor the time he spent fishing with his father at Walker's K. And the Walker's K bottle highlights this connection to fishing with a great picture of a marlin on the label designed by renowned marine artist Carrie Chen, who also designed some great offshore trolling lures. Now, the press for Walker's K Bourbon also says that the bourbon is supposed to capture the Bahamian lifestyle, or as the press says, to, quote, capture the island lifestyle in every bottle, and that it fits the fisherman's lifestyle, and again, a quote, sophisticated yet humble. Clearly, the folks at King's Spirit have not met the fishermen who hang around the boat ramps where I fish most. Sophisticated? Humble? I don't think so. Hey, as a side note, you should know too 
that King Spirit also started making Hopetown vodka when they started distilling, distilling Walker's Cave bourbon. And these vodka bottles feature a beautiful Chen design sailfish in the same style as the Marlin on the bourbon label. I'll tell you, though, that I am a faithful follower of the gospel of Louis Grizzard, who once said, never trust a man who drinks see-through whiskey. So you're not going to get much of, out of me about the vodka other than to say Chen has designed a beautiful label with a great sailfish on it. I should note, too, that King Spirit also founded the King Spirit Giving Initiative, and portion of the sales of King Spirit bourbon and vodka are donated to organizations that help support Bahamian communities. So as origin stories go, I'm digging on the fishing-inspired story, even though it doesn't yet have the lacquer of time backing it. As for the bourbon itself, obviously, this is a newer bourbon to the market, and it's just starting to get its foothold. It's a Kentucky straight bourbon distilled by the Green River Distillery in Owensboro, Kentucky. It's a straight bourbon, but it's finished with sherry cask staves. Keep in mind, too, that in order for a bottle to be distinguished as a Kentucky straight bourbon, the spirit has to age for at least one year in oak barrels in Kentucky. The mash bill on the Walker's K is a 70% Kentucky corn, 21% winter rye, and 9% malted barley. Neither the bottle nor any of the press that I've seen about the bourbon, though, indicates any aging information. So other than assuming that it's been in a barrel in Kentucky for at least a year, I'm not sure how long the Walker's K bourbons have been aged. Now, this is a 90-proof whiskey, so it's a mid-range bourbon proof. Visually, this is a lighter-looking whiskey that leans more toward a golden yellow than a deep amber or copper. The nose on this bourbon really sings a kind of sweetness to me. I can smell the oak, but it's the fruitier, sweeter aroma that dominates. The corn is there for sure, but my mind keeps coming back to those sherry cask staves and the sweetness of the fruit. Maybe that corn and sweetness hint at the caramel corn at a carnival, but there's something else here too that I don't want to think of as the kind of antiseptic I get from some Japanese bourbons, but there's something there behind the sweet that reminds me of that smell you got as a kid when you drink water from a hose or the smell of a new vinyl raft. The flavor opens with sweetness, very fruity to me, but light, not like a heavy cherry syrup, more like pears and oranges with caramelized sugar. It's pleasant, but not captivating. It's a bourbon that seems like it's designed for undiscerning drinkers. You know, the kind that might drink flavored whiskeys rather than straight bourbon. It's like wanting Chinese food and getting P.F. Chang's. It'll fill your belly, but it doesn't sate your cravings. That sweetness hangs on through the finish, though there is a bit of rye creeping out at the end, but sweet and fruit dominate throughout the palate spectrum. I gotta say, inherently, there's nothing to dislike about this bourbon, but it also doesn't ever really get your attention, make you want to pay attention. I'll admit, though, that I'm going to order a couple of more bottles for my shelf, mostly because of the label, but also because I like the philosophy and the story behind this bourbon. Plus, given the aesthetic beauty of this bottle, when my less than sophisticated and humble fishing buddies come over, the gorgeous bottle will make it look like I'm pouring something higher in that... that than what the uh, ramp rodeo crowd actually deserves. Oh yeah, so you know, the bourbon lists for about $37 a bottle. You may need to look online to find a bottle. I checked with about a half a dozen local stores unable to find a bottle before I ended up ordering a few online. 
So yeah, those are my thoughts on this new fisherman focused bourbon, Walker's K bourbon. Hey, but before we go, and as a final note, my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though, of course, as always, I am open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest and worst, watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alleys, speakeasies. Hey, speaking of which, let me give a quick shout-out to the Tiki Bar at Sugarloaf Lodge in Sugarloaf Key, Florida. This may be a small hotel bar, but boy, have I had too many good times there not to acknowledge it as one of my favorite places. And for those of you who know, Hunter S. Thompson would agree. So here's to the lobster tail and the bourbon, three of my favorite things. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com or leave a comment on any of the platforms on which you're listening to the Rodcast. Fish on and drink up, folks. Okay, it is time for that part of the show that I, just like everyone else who does top 10 list, ripped off from David Letterman. It's the Fishing Professor's top 10 list. Woohoo! Fanfare all around. I really ought to get canned applause for this in a laugh track. Hey, today's top 10 list is my top 10 fishing movies. Come on, let's face it. No matter where you live or where you fish, there are times when you just can't get on the water for whatever reason, weather, work, family, or whatever. But when we can't get on the water, though, there are plenty of ways to keep your head in the fishing game. There are endless channels and streams on social media for watching fishing videos, plenty of online retailers and print catalogs to flip through while fantasizing about extravagant shopping sprees, some decent video games out there, too, and of course, there are a solid number of great television shows to watch. And there are a lot of online tutorials for learning new skills and strategies or just brushing up on some forgotten knot-tying competence. All of these are great diversions when you can't get on the water, but there is also an ocean of books and films about fishing that can reinvigorate your indoor fishing season. So I'll take up the best fishing books in another top 10, but let's take a look at my top 10 fishing movies. Now, of course, I've got more than 10 that I want to talk about because I'm a movie junkie, but we're going to keep to the honor of the top 10 and just look at 10 movies. I know there are others out there. So get your popcorn ready and get a seat in the balcony. Turn off your phone, please, because it is movie time. So if we're going to acknowledge that there are movie versions of great fishing books, then we have to acknowledge that Hemingway's Islands in the Stream is a great book, and it's also the basis for the first entry into our top 10. And so coming in at number 10 is the 1977 film version of Islands in the Stream, starring George C. Scott, David Hemings, and Gilbert Rowland, and it's directed by Franklin Schaffner. It is well worth the watch. Hey, coming in at number nine, I'm going to have to go with the king, Elvis Presley. I love Elvis movies, and there are a few wonderful Elvis movies where Elvis comes to Florida. Think Clambake, for example. But there's only one in which the king battles a silver king, a tarpon, on a cane pole, using a safety pen as a hook from a bridge in Yankeetown, Florida, and that's Follow That Dream. Based on Richard Powell's 1959 novel, Pioneer Go Home, which is also a great book, this classic Elvis film was one of the top films of 1962. It is an absolute hoot. And Elvis running a fishing camp while keeping gangsters at bay is absolutely terrific. 
Hey, speaking of funny, let's not forget Disney's contribution to fishing movies, and we'll give the number eight position to Disney for four movies. The 1953 Disney classic, The Simple Things, in which Mickey and Pluto go fishing, and the three great fishing films that feature the clueless Goofy. Gorsh, something wrong here. Goofy and Wilbur, How to Fish, and a Goofy Movie. All right, let's stick with comedy for the number seven position. But okay, a really bad comedy. In fact, I really contemplated not even mentioning this movie because it's just that bad. But let's give it a number seven just because of its cast. I'm talking about the 1997 disappointment Gone Fishing, starring Joe Pesci, Danny Glover, and Rosanna Arquette, not to mention Willie Nelson as the Everglades guide Catch Pooler. Nelson also sings the movie's theme song, which is a fabulous song about fishing in the Everglades and Gatorade. Woohoo! Go Gators! You'd think that with a cast like this, the film would have to be good. It's not. But it does have a few funny moments and a few that would make every real angler cringe. Spoiler alert. Pesci and Glover managed to destroy a Ranger 250 center console and a mess of other boats in this film. It's a heartbreaking moment for anglers and boaters. Interestingly, though, for a film called Gone Fishing, there's almost no fishing in this movie. I'm almost tempted to say that Gone Fishing is worse than the 2008 bass fishing comedy Bait Shop, but it's not. Bait Shop is about Bill Dugan, who's played by Bill Ingvall, as the owner of a down and out of luck bait shop, Dugan decides to enter a bass tournament, hoping that the prize money will save the bait shop from foreclosure. It may not be having even as many funny moments as Gone Fishing, which is saying a lot because Gone Fishing doesn't have a lot, but at least it has more fishing. Hey, in terms of overall fishing comedies, though, I have to say that the worst fishing comedy ever made has to be the 2006 film Swarm of the Snakehead. Intelligent, invasive species. Ugh. But out of deference to Pesci, Glover, Arquette, and Nelson, I'm going to put Gone Fishing at number seven. Okay, and number six. If you want a great fishing movie that is funny and actually has fishing in it, check out the 1964 film Man's Favorite Sport with a question mark. So it's Man's Favorite Sport? It stars Rock Hudson and Paula Pentris. This fun film tells the story of Roger Willoughby, played by Rock Hudson, who is a fishing expert who sells tackle for Abercrombie and Fitch back when Abercrombie and Fitch still sold outdoor gear and not, quote, lifestyle clothing for Gen Z brats. Anyway, Willoughby, who has written the best-selling fishing guidebook, but when Abercrombie PR woman Pentress enters Willoughby in an elite fishing tournament, we learn that he has never actually fished a day in his life and has no idea what he's doing. Man's favorite sport is a real fun flick. Hey, at number five, let's go with the best fishing comedy of all times. The 1932 classic short film from Laurel and Hardy called Toad in a Hole. That's T-O-W-E-D, not T-O-A-D like we thought you was a toad. We thought you was a toad. Toad in a Hole is a fantastic little film that portrays comedy deities Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy as fishmongers who decide to cut out the middleman and become fishermen to harvest their own fish. The two buy a boat at a junkyard and mayhem ensues only as it could in a 1930s movie. 
All right, at number four, I'm going to go with something a little more serious. It's not really a sport fishing film, but I recommend checking out Ed Harris in the 1985 film Alamo Bay. It's a great commentary on the commercial fishing industry and race issues in Texas. This is one of those films that deserve more notoriety than it got. It's really worth watching. Okay, at number three. If you're looking for commentary about the American commercial fishing industry, there's always the blockbuster, The Perfect Storm. Based on Sebastian Younger's best-selling book by the same title and starring George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, John C. Riley, and William Fitchner, this big-screen action drama is a fun watch despite its romanticizing of the environmentally destructive commercial fishing industry. I've always thought of this film as being akin to Billy Joel's Down Easter Alexa from his 1989 album Stormfront, a beautiful song that romanticizes a cancerous industry. And yes, I can talk fishing songs as well as books and movies. Coming in at number two, I'm going to go with a documentary and Khalil Hudson's 2012 film, Low and Clear. This documentary is a meditation on friendship and the landscape of the American West. It has a lot of undertones of a river runs through it, and it captures some great landscape footage and fly fishing footage of the American West. Okay, so that leaves us the number one fishing movie of all time, according to The Fishing Professor. Drumroll, please. Fanfare and all of that. And you already know what it is because it's obvious. The number one fishing movie of all times is Star Wars. Okay, maybe not. That's just the best movie of all times. And don't forget that Qui-Gon Jinn does say self-righteously there's always a bigger fish. But no, seriously, the number one fishing movie of all times, of course, is... Wait, wait, wait. Before the big reveal, we have to do our recap, right? So, quick recap of our countdown to number one. At number 10, Islands in the Stream. Number nine, Follow That Dream. Number eight, Disney's four movies, The Simple Things, Goofy and Wilbur, How to Fish, and a Goofy Movie. Number seven, Gone Fishing. Number six, Man's Favorite Sport. Number five, Toad in a Hole. Number four, Alamo Bay. Number three, The Perfect Storm. Number two, Low and Clear. So, of course, then, my number one film is A River Runs Through It. Clearly, the minute anyone says fishing movies, A River Runs Through It comes to mind, and it is a great fishing movie and a great book. Heck, a fishing book about and by an English professor who fishes and a movie that stars Brad Pitt, what could be better? Now, I'd throw The River Why into this list, but I never felt like the movie lived up to the book and it just kind of fell flat. But River Runs Through It is just visually beautiful, well-written, well-acted. It is, in fact, a fantastic movie. And this also happens to be the 30th anniversary of the release of River Runs Through It this year. Okay, wait. Something's definitely wrong here. A River Runs Through It can't really be the end of the top 10 movie list, right? What about... Jaws, such a great movie, such great on-the-water fishing and camaraderie. Let's face it, that scene between Roy Schneider, Robert Shaw, and Richard Dreyfuss in the cabin of the Orca is one of the best scenes in filmic history, and the fact that they ad-libbed most of that is it's outstanding. Oh, and I got to say, too, that about 20 years ago, I bought a boat from this place in Ocala, Florida, and they had the rod and reel Quint uses to fish for the shark in the movie hanging on the wall there. What a great piece of, of movie memorabilia. So Jaws is also the number one fishing movie. Okay, wait, something else is missing. How did I get to number one twice, Jaws and River Runs Through It? without mentioning the iconic Old Man in the Sea, both the book and the 1958 movie. 
yeah, Spencer Tracy as the old man and that incredible battle with the Marlin and that captivating voiceover. The movie is so true to the book. It's just fantastic. So even though I'm going with A River Runs Through It as my number one movie and Jaws as my other number one movie, I'm going to put Old Man in the Sea one step up on the dais above them in a glorious bound for heaven, top of the charts, a number one Duke of New York position that exceeds being counted in a top 10 because it is divine. Anyway, that's the professor's top 10 fishing movies. As always, I know you've got your faves too, so feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com and tell me why your favorite should have been in the list. And as always, if you like a fishing professor to do a top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And that's this episode's top 10, Curtain Closed. Wow, well, that brings us to the end of another great broadcast. Hey, I want to thank Chris Adams and Brooke Oliva from Mudhole for being on the broadcast today. And seriously, everyone who has any dedication to fishing, no matter what kind of fishing you do, be it freshwater, saltwater, conventional spinning, fly fishing, inshore, offshore, baitcaster, or whatever, you really need to check out Mudhole, learn about rod building, and really increase your understanding of how your rods work and what rods will work best for you. Building custom rods really can be one of the most rewarding aspects of fishing, just shy of the actual fishing. And the crew at Mudhole can get you started. And if you can't swing by the Mudhole facility in Ovieta, Florida, just check out mudhole.com and check out all of the Mudhole great instructional videos, online classes, and products. Hey, I also hope you liked my top 10 angling movies countdown. And if you know of other fishing movies I need to check out, hey, please let me know. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The knot is slipping. I say again, the knot is slipping. And like the inevitable setting of the sun across the ocean, that brings to the conclusion of another episode of the Rodcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Remember that new episodes drop every Wednesday, and next week is no exception. In fact, I can honestly say that next week's episode is set to be a great one. But then again, that's the case with all the episodes of the Rodcast. It's like they say, a bad day of fishing is better than a good day at work, and a great episode of the Rodcast is better than no episode of the Rodcast. Well, that's what they say, and you know how they are. As always, please be sure to spread the gospel of the Rodcast and let everyone you know know that you listen to the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, all at Inventive Fishing, and be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a whole bunch of other cool videos. You can also access the podcast there, too. I'll be back next week with another episode, and until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. 
Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC, is strictly prohibited. Fish on!